Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ghost Spider Groupies, the podcast dedicated to Gwen Stacy of Earth-65, also known as Spider-Gwen and Ghost Spider, where we review her comics, discuss news, and give our opinions about all things Gwen-65. I'm Pax. And I'm Abigail. So, we only have one piece of news for this week's Weekend update, which is that Demon Day's Cursed Web by Peach Momoko is actually on sale now, and... It's only relevant because there's a ghost spider-like character in the story, which we'll be covering next week anyway. We'll get back to that later. But yeah, it's on sale now. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that. Very much so. Um, and discussing that next week, it's going to be it's going to be fun. The previews look really interesting. We'll give context. If you haven't read uh, Demon Day's Mariko, we'll give context for anything if uh, if you do choose to just buy this one and not the other two uh, Demon Days issues, so yeah. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what this version of Ghost Spider is going to be like, since obviously this is not Gwen, it's a schoolgirl named Reina Yuyami. Yes, yes, but it is Ghost Spider, and is probably the highest profile Ghost Spider thing, either four months or so either side of when we're recording this. Um, so yeah, we want to, we want to give it a fair shake, I think for a ghost spider podcast. Yep. And, uh, since this is only entry three of five, if she appears in the, uh, latter two books, possibly we might cover it on the show as well. It depends on how much big of a role she has in those last two books. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, it, we'll, we'll see how it goes. She might even, hopefully she makes it through this one into the next two. Uh, that'd be great. So Yeah. We are currently reading Impossible Year, which is Spider Gwen Go Spider issues number five through to nine. We're not doing number ten, getting pushed to next week. So last week, what we did was we read the first arc of this run, this sort of era of Spider Gwen comics, um, and that was the Spider Gwen tie-in issues. We did that with Anne, who was very very cool. We had a good time talking about the sort of alternate Earth they go to in that tie-in series, and then the funerals they go to in that fourth issue. And there was the Gwen Goblin. There were some deaths from the Web Warriors, which were very sad. Um, and she sort of had to deal with the fallout of those. And we've seen Takeshi Maizawa on art now, which is very, very cool. Very, very pleased to have him on. And we we're going to be putting all of the information about where to read, where to buy in a reading list link in the description, as well as a comicsology link to this arc um particularly the trade for it so that you know what to look for if you're buying it elsewhere or if you want to read it on there so one thing i have to say about this arc is that it's sort of it's more slice of lifey i wouldn't call it slice of life but it's more um it's not like one single event right it's more like day after day after day yeah it's kind of like that trope in most superhero tv shows where the hero after outing their identity they're trying to balance their costumed life with their civilian life yeah it's like that it's very much like i think in this arc it's very it comes through very sort of thick and strong gwen's day-to-day -day life you see her eating meals you see her with uh, her father her friends looking for all kinds of different practical things paying bills um, and of course all of the superhero stuff and the sort of the politics the whole situation as well with the mayor and such so like this is sort of 
I would say probably the most comprehensive it gets. But also it meant that when I was going back to the synopsis, it's sort of, it's like every paragraph, it's a new day or it's a new thing. It doesn't flow very well when it's not in a sort of fast paced comic format. When it's put into a summary, it's like, Gwen does this, Gwen does that, Gwen does this. So it's just a heads up. That's why it sort of sounds quite disjointed when we read it back. Um, But yeah. Um, that's sort of the vibe that this arc is more so than I think any other uh, arc of Spider-Gwen. I think it's it's very much sort of you know, the day in the life of with each scene or issue in this arc. So, you know, like before, we always do a little synopsis just to make sure that everyone's on the same page, what we're talking about, or if you're reading along with us. And yeah, let's begin. Gwen has banned practice with the Mary Janes where she considers that a lot of MJ's lyrics tend to describe the singer's frustrations of her. The song is interrupted when Gwen and MJ argue over the beat while Glory tries to rein in MJ's meaner tone. Gwen later considers that the band is good but used to be better, that they can again but just need time. Despite the tension, Gwen leaves the Mary Janes on good terms, optimistic for their future, relieved that she no longer has to keep her secret identity from them. Gwen goes to get some food out with Harry Osborne. She's down about the losses the spider totem sustained during Spider-Geddon, and she confides in Harry about the whole situation. He encourages her and cheers Gwen up, emphasizing to her that she is a hero for what she's doing. Later, while slinging through the city, a citizen shouts Gwen for help from a rooftop. They have lost their purse and because they are in an illegal subletting situation, are unable to call for police or a locksmith for help. They don't even need the purse, just the keys inside it. She tells her what it looks like and where it was lost and Gwen agrees to keep an eye out for it. Gwen goes home to her father George Stacy who has made dinner for them. He recognizes that Gwen is finding her life as a superhero difficult and wants to make sure that he has someone to talk to about it. Gwen assures him that she is hinting at Harry. The day after, Gwen goes to an appointment with the registrar at a community college but has a panic attack and runs away when she is recognized. She doesn't believe that she can be normal anymore and decides against enrolling for college altogether. While swinging away, Gwen stumbles across a jewellery store robbery. She stops it while it is in progress and, to her surprise, finds the civilians that were caught up in the situation cheer and clap in gratitude afterwards. Gwen searches for the purse by deploying many symbiote spiders around the area it was lost and, in another pleasant surprise for Gwen, finds it shortly after. Gwen returns the purse to its owner with keys still inside and they unexpectedly give Gwen a cash reward for her troubles. Gwen swings home considering the possibility of doing odd jobs using her spider powers to help pay for the overdue bills and the rent that the Stacy household isn't keeping up with. The gang from the jewelry store lick their wounds back at their hideout and complain to their boss, John Jonah Jameson III, the son of J. Jonah Jameson Jr., the mayor, after hearing of how she so easily foiled their heist. He declares to the group that they will get rid of Spider-Woman. Gwen starts a new day and watches a video of the mayor giving a speech welcoming Spider-Woman back into New York following her prison release and considers the cynical nature of this when it was not long ago that Jameson gave speeches from a similar platform rallying against her vigilante actions. Gwen looked at some old clothes and has her symbiote replicate their look as if they were new. Gwen has breakfast with her father and Gwen discusses her idea to make money doing odd jobs. She wants to know if he would be okay with this. But George comments that he's generally not okay with Gwen being Spider-Woman, but realizes that she's almost an adult and that it's important to her that she continues as a superhero. 
Gwen further explains that she thinks this will be a good way for people to see her doing no harm, like a community service, and that they'll be able to contribute towards the rent and the food. Not wanting to seem like she was asking for permission, Gwen says that it's a step between that and begging for forgiveness. George cedes the point but asks that Gwen be careful. Later that day, Gwen interrupts the bodega bandit in the middle of robbing a bodega for the first time since her identity went public and she went to prison. The two briefly catch up. She webs the cap gun he was wielding right out of his hands and sends him on his way. Leaving the store, Gwen finds that unusually, she has a headache. Gwen visits Betty Brandt going to her with a plan for a superhero odd jobs business idea, as well as for some donuts and aspirin to help her feel better with the headache. Betty helps her with this idea in particular, with setting up a website that will let Gwen receive requests and advertise her services. Later at band practice, Gwen tells MJ about the new business, but she expresses frustration that Gwen won't have as much time for her band in the schedule now. During the conversation, it comes up that the reason that Gwen moved back in with her father was because Betty was afraid of supervillains attacking their apartment now that her identity was public. Nonetheless, the rehearsal goes well, and Gwen goes around the city sticking flies to walls for her services. Gwen hears a scream and goes to check it out. Confused, she finds a tape recording playing it loudly from a parking lot. She's then suddenly hit over the head and ambushed by Jameson III's gang wielding baseball bats and metal pipes. Gwen beats the gang down, but before she can find out why they laid this trap, she blacks out. She wakes up with a really bad headache on a rooftop away from the fight, with the gang having now fled the scene. She calls Harry for a ride, and he takes her home. He offers to take her out to a fancy restaurant the next day, and Gwen agrees, reflecting that she would like to get used to a little normal for herself. Back at their hideout, the gang show one of their senior members, Miles Warren, the Jackal, covertly filmed footage taken of the fight. He shows this footage to Jameson III due to the lunar phases progressing, transformed into the monstrous man-wolf. Warren explains that Gwen hits hard but doesn't have very much technique and gives further context about her. She has stretched herself thin doing this new business. Man-wolf states that they will wait a few days more before attacking. The next day, Harry and Gwen excitedly meet for their date at an obscenely expensive restaurant. Before they can order, the waiter asks them to leave, as Gwen's presence attracts the ire of the other patrons. Gwen confronts the waiter about this, but he makes it clear that she is not viewed as a hero here. Gwen runs out of the restaurant, upset at how she can never fit in anymore, and that she doesn't want to drag Harry into that, and abruptly swings off. Gwen takes out her frustration on fighting criminals not burdened with the stress of having to worry if they hate her. Gwen considers that there might never be any kind of normal for her anymore. Gwen receives a request for her odd jobs and services through her website. She does a job for a scientist getting elevated air samples above New York City. She also has follow-up requests throughout the week, saving a cat from a tree, giving selfies to fans, and turning down offers for dates. At the end of the week, Gwen gets an ordinary meal of Harry and the two catch up. The Mary Janes are getting ready for a big gig that Harry says he'll be in the front row. Harry also asks after and expresses concern for Gwen's recurring headaches, but she receives another request through her website and quickly has to leave. There had been a large pileup of cars and other vehicles. Smelling gas, local police have to wait for special equipment to enter and assist those still trapped. Realizing there was an urgent time factor, they decided to request Gwen's help. She agrees to this, despite being plagued by another severe headache. Gwen slings a large spider's web positioned above the pile up from one side of the street to the other. 
This allows Gwen to rescue a small child and a trapped injured cyclist. In the process, a spark from moving the vehicle ignites the gas. Gwen quickly escapes with the two, swinging high above the explosion to get them out of range of the resulting fireball. With the two returned to safety, Gwen refuses payment from the police as she considers this superhero work and swings off. Realizing that her headaches were getting even worse, Gwen considers which scientists she can go to for help with her powers. She comes to the conclusion that she needs to seek out Dr. Elsa Brock, the only person who knows how the symbiote works. Using his status as the son of the owner of Oscorp, Harry gets Gwen a meeting with Brock who works there. However, they soon find that Brock has disappeared without a trace, her office completely cleared out. In her frustration over things, Gwen says that there's no one to help her, hurting Harry with the sharpness of the statement. Gwen reassures him, however, and says that this statement wasn't aimed at him and that they just need to find Elsa Brock. Band practice for the upcoming gig is particularly tense, and it boils over completely when one of Gwen's symbiote spiders acts out and frightens MJ Midsong. MJ accuses Gwen of not caring about the band and of jealousy over the spotlight not being on a drummer. Glory encourages MJ to cool down while Gwen swings off with the situation no longer conducive to any band practice. Eating a corn dog to calm down, Gwen comes across a robbery by Manwolf's gang in motion. She confronts the robbers, initially quippy, but her banter and punches grows increasingly aggressive over the duration of the fight, her frustration getting the better of her. Her appearance alters somewhat for a moment, and Gwenum briefly flashes across her face and hood before it returns to normal. Gwen realizes that she has gone too far when she has to stop herself from beating down on a defeated thug and swings off. Back at the hideout, Miles Warren tends to some of the thug's injuries sustained at Gwen's fists and manages to extract a symbiote spider left behind in the action. He presents his finding to Manwolf, who tasks him with finding a way of killing her with this. Having now struggled much with her friendship in the band, her relationship with Harry, and her newfound prosperity for headaches and violence, Gwen laments about why everything has to be so hard. The day of the gig, the Mary Janes play a concert to an adoring crowd, and all seems to be going well before Gwen's spider sense goes off. She spots a bomb placed on the supports for the lighting on the ceiling. She puts a web shield between the band on the stage and the rest of the venue to stop the blast from hitting them. She then successfully webs up the bomb, diffusing it. Much to her horror, Gwen turns to see that the rest of the ceiling above her is also covered with similar bombs, and before she can get anyone else to safety, they all go off at once. They detonate across the venue, causing multiple casualties throughout the audience. Mostly unharmed by the blast, Gwen was knocked out for a brief period. She stirs awake and surveys the destruction around her. The web shield for the band held. A confused MJ is apparently angry at Gwen, but that her and the band are otherwise alright. Gwen assists with the search and rescue crews, moving as many injured out of the building to paramedics as is reasonably possible, including a severely injured Harry. Gwen is furious with whoever has done this and quickly comes to the realization that the only gang she has been fighting with so much lately could be responsible for something at this scale. She deploys her symbiote spiders at previous locations of their activity to search for them and infiltrates a police station to get data on them, hearing of the name Manwolf for the first time herself. She further discovers that Manwolf and his gang appeared while Gwen was in prison, following the defeat of their hand and began their extensive organized crime then. The uniform typically consists of crescent moon insignias on armbands and occasionally wolf-themed attire and masks. The symbiote spiders identify members of the gang, and Gwen ambushes and interrogates them for the location of their hideout. 
Gwen sneaks into their hideout, but Man Wolf, hiding in the shadows, goes for an unexpected swipe at her. His size and surprise give him the advantage for the upper half of the fight, but Gwen soon regains control of the situation and overpowers him, beating him down and webbing him up before he can even give a defeated villain monologue. Gwen vows to never become a monster like him. With Manwolf in police custody, Gwen goes to Harry's bedside at the hospital, joined by the Mary Janes who arrive to support each other. The arc closes out with Gwen expanding on her adage about death. Death loves Gwen Stacy, but Gwen Stacy loves her people. And this has been Impossible Year, which was actually quite lengthy. Yeah, it's very dense, this arc is. It's very... There's a lot of events happening in it, you know, um, yeah, and I, I like that about it. I like that it feels like time is passing, and I think that's necessary to sort of give perspective, like, on what it is like for Gwen after getting out of prison, because it's not mentioned too much, but I think the fact that she is, she has just got out of prison affects just about everything that's happening in this arc, I'd say. Yeah, and plus, you know, she has to juggle, you know, her normal, well, her civilian life with her superhero life. That's always very common with heroes with public identities. You know, look at Iron Man, for example, or just any of the rest of the Avengers whose identities are public. They still have a normal life, but they still need to find a way to balance that with their work job. Yeah, and I think it's probably worse for Gwen because, like, unlike somebody like Iron Man who has billions and can afford, you know, a really big house with security and good PR and all that, Gwen has none of that. Like, she's lost out on where she used to live before. She has to live with her dad. She cannot pay rent. She can't go to community college because she has panic attacks whenever she gets recognized. And the band that she used to play with isn't as good anymore and everything's really tense all the time. And she just can't really commit to a relationship with Harry properly without things sort of getting kind of upsetting. So yeah, like overall, stuff's just rough. It's really put her back, I think, socially speaking. Yeah. And in the same tone, we actually have the return of the Stacey swear jar. Oh, right. Yes. Yes, we do. And she only swears once in this arc. Actually, overall, during the Spider-Gwen Ghost Spider run. Um, she only did it once in issue number six when she was beating up the man wolf's henchman. She was like, what the fuck was this? Some kind of initiation ritual. And it brings the total so far in the Stacy swear jar to $40. Well, hey, there we go. So that's some progress there. I do think, yeah, it's very much part of Gwen's voice, I think. And it's a shame when we go an arc without it, I think. Yeah. Next writer, make Gwen Stacy swear again. Yes, please. Yeah, very much. And I think one of the things I really liked about uh, this is the sort of the voice we have for Gwen, particularly like overall, you know, swearing is more of a sort of aesthetic thing, I suppose. Uh, but the stuff like um, the conversations that she has with her dad, very good. I think Maguire writes the George and Gwen Stacy conversations very, very well. And the dynamic where you have two people who are very concerned for each other but fundamentally disagree with what the other is doing is a really interesting dynamic to draw on. And it's really interesting to see how they're very much committed to helping each other and bettering each other, but also at the same time, just completely not approving of what the other is doing. Um, yeah. Especially since, you know, uh, Captain Stacy is one of the few people that helps Gwen be grounded since uh he's one of the only people who actually has a normal life he doesn't get dragged into uh, gwen's misadventures so often anymore 
And this was actually one of um, Maguire's favorite things to write about Gwen, as she said from before in one of her tweets. One of her favorite moments for writing Gwen was anytime she talks to her dad, which is really heartwarming. Yeah, it is. And you do get a real warmth from them. And I think the characterizations are very, very unique for them. They're very strong. Uh, they feel like very, I think the, the characters have a lot of depth in those conversations, particularly. And George, uh, I don't know, There is, there, I think there is a bit of a conceptual problem with George Stacey in this run um, with regards to his employment. Yeah, because as you listeners would remember at the beginning of the last run, Captain Stacy quit. Yeah, like a really, really big part of his arc sort of going into, I want to say, which issue is it exactly? Because it's, it's not right at the start. It's a few in, right? Um, was it at the end of Most Wanted or... I think maybe Greater Power? Yeah, I think in between Greater Power and uh, Most Wanted. After a certain point, yeah, he quits the police force and then he actively starts working against the task force, which is going against Gwen by like publicly releasing information about them and eventually handing himself in so that he can get a public court trial where he can denounce them there. And... That whole process was very much him having to move away from the police. And and somehow, just up in the air, or just very abruptly, Captain Stacy has his captain's job back. Yeah, and, and I think the way they talk about it, it's almost like he's been on medical leave. Like, he's had a leave of absence because he's been ill. Which is, you know, I guess somewhat true. I think it was because it's his heart. Right, like, he got completely completely messed up at the end of the Spider-Gwen run by the Rhino, and he was obviously in a coma for a while, and there's that whole sort of the end of it sort of ends in a bit where it's sort of like kind of ambiguous about how his health situation is, whether he'll psychologically recover from it particularly, but then it's sort of, but obviously like by the point he'd been severely injured by the Rhino, he was in custody in prison. He was very much not a police captain, and I don't know if perhaps the writer here just wants to have him as a police captain again, or maybe there was some kind of miscommunication somewhere, but it's very much treating him as if he is a police captain on leave. Um, and they do pick this up further along the line. This isn't like just something we're drawing from like a few lines here and there. This is like the new thing for Captain Stacy is he is on some kind of medical leave and that's why he's at home all the time now. Not the case that, you know, he quit the force and actively worked against them as part of an ideological shift and change in character. Um, so yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I've, I like, it's hard to sort of reconcile the fact that like some of my favorite George Stacy and Gwen Stacy comments are on a comic, which also forgets about his most important decision that he makes in the Spider-Man comics. So yeah, I, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. I'm just thinking that maybe in my head that probably off panel, he was just offered his job back because Castle was arrested and I don't think anyone else had George's level of seniority to be a captain. No, um, in fact, like there's a lot of like background details they give in like the character profiles and stuff, which really elevates George's role in the NYPD as somebody who was instrumental in the defeat of uh, Wilson Fisk and sort of coming up through the Yancey Street Gang veterans um, as somebody sort of who rooted out corruption within the NYPD. And also, like, I think without, like, ideologically betraying the character, I think perhaps they could just put the reason down to the fact that the Stacys can't pay their rent. Like, there's overdue bills on the table. Gwen's thinking about taking all these odd jobs up. And, you know, like, it would make sense that 
and he's also got massive medical bills presumably so it would make sense that he'd want to get back into employment and i imagine it would be very difficult for a veteran cop to find work in something that isn't cop related at least so i would be you know i find i find they could have just given that perhaps as a reason for him to take that job back um sort of a reluctant cop which is sort of what he was to begin with anyway it would fit with that character quite well yeah especially since george has to do something he can't talk with gwen all of the time no he can't even though those scenes are very very good you do get the sense he is sort of set around just trying to heal from his encounter with the rhino in this arc and with a view to having to get things started again he does have to do something but yeah yeah and going back to gwen we see that throughout this arc she does get to use her symbiote a little bit more yes i think the deploying symbiote spiders maneuver thing is really really cool i think it's probably one of the most interesting uses of that power because it's sort of hinted at in the first arc that gwen can use symbiote spiders to monitor people she uses it on george she also uses it on richie rogers to spy on him yeah but she's sort of she's around richie rogers like she's actively like she's more physically present for that the idea of her remotely doing it from afar like going about like like dropping them off somewhere and going about somewhere else that i think that was more like what she'd do is she'd drop by george stacy leave some of his shoes or whatever uh, when he was ill yeah and it implied that um she can do scrying with her uh, gummy spiders like they can see what she sees and vice versa i think at least by the time they're reabsorbed into her she gets all of that information back i don't know how much of it is being like i don't know like telepathically linked back to her although there is definitely some kind of link there i do think the way that maguire fleshes out that ability and just shows the practical uses of it as something that can be done you know to find missing stuff to search for bad guys like i think that's a very very interesting use of her symbiote powers and it's also not something i've seen from any other symbiote character I, I really like this aspect to the character. I think it's very, very cool. So you think that the ability of uh, seeing what the spider sees, like it's not like what Gert does with old lace because she can actually see through old lace's eyes. Uh, what is this, what's this from? Runaways. Uh, I have not read Runaways, I'm afraid. Oh, it's because uh, the two of them share a telepathic link. So when Gert wants to, she can see what old lace sees. Right. I see. I, I, I mean, that's possible. I could see that being a thing. But I think the other part of it and the way that Maguire shows it is that like the spiders return to her and then she has this moment where she pauses and talks to them almost yeah. in her head once yeah. they're reabsorbed. Even though the, and... the symbiote doesn't have a voice, well, to our knowledge anyway. The, the way I see it is the symbiote is communicating with her somehow like she has that line of i'm never alone so there is some kind of acknowledgement going on there i think between gwen and the symbiote that the two are clearly their thoughts are linked in some way yeah. where they're able to communicate information to each other so i don't necessarily think it should be something that's given to the reader but the way it's acknowledged here that gwen has a symbiote and is influencing it and it influences her is very interesting and plus on the other hand remember when harry asked her if she can just ask the symbiote why is it sick and then gwen said that it doesn't really work that way when she talks to it which issue was is that i think it was eight when before they were asking about if they can go see elsa when they were entering oscorp right okay one second here i can't chat like that it's more complicated i see yeah and i think like that's a good line. I think maybe it's more to the effect of like, 
And I think the way Maguire has spoken about it in interviews since is that Gwen Symbiote is sort of like a toddler in its ability to communicate information and process emotion. Like it's very reduced in that aspect. And I, I would imagine that it include stuff like this instead of it like being able to say, I need X, Y, Z kind of thing to make sure that I'm not unhappy. It gives her headaches or the symbiote spiders act out or, you know, like her powers fail. Yeah, because, you know, the only other time she actually talks to the symbiote is when she wants to change her clothes because, you know, this was another one of Maguire's favorite moments that she doesn't have to do laundry anymore. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea that, like, Gwen can just think of an outfit and wear it. And they, they obviously did it with superhero costumes in the last one. But here it being, like, you know, just seeing, like, uh, it's like a new blouse or, like, going out for, a, like, a fancy date and going, you know, I'm going to have the nicest dress and just thinking it and the symbiote doing it. The coolest idea, I think. Very, very fun. Especially since Eddie does this all the time. But if um, everyone wants to go too far with this... The both of them, or actually any symbiote host at all, if they are reliant on their symbiote too much for clothing, they're practically in their underwear at this point. Yeah, like, in theory, the symbiote is all her clothes, so therefore, like, and my worry would be with, yeah, like, you know... Like, if it's stripped from her unceremoniously, like what Null did to Eddie, she's just in her underwear? Absolutely. If, if I were a symbiote superhero character, I'd be constantly paranoid about that. You know, I'd have some kind of contingency plan in place, even if I was completely reliant on the symbiote for clothing. It would become a paranoia, for sure. I think the rule is just don't let anyone touch you. That's it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's the way around it. And, and to Gwen's credit, she's never been stripped of the symbiote. Even when, like, the Punisher knocks it off her slightly in the Gwenna mark, it doesn't fully leave her. It's sort of, it's sort of there. It just sort of gets all messed up, but it doesn't fully separate. So I think, you know, by and large, Gwen's made a success of it so far anyway. Yeah. Um, and speaking of the symbiote transforming into different things, we also got a glimpse at Gwenum for the first time in a while. At first, I thought that this was just to intimidate Manwolf's gang or if she was going to relapse into Gwenum. Yeah, I think, I mean, what I think this arc wants to do is it wants to present us with this thing that sort of sets up a lot of Gwen's status quo, but at the same time is setting up perhaps this larger issue further down the line of Gwen having issues with her symbiote and with her place in the world with regards to, like, the way the rest of the Earth sees her. And I don't know how much of that did really get properly delivered on in the next sort of arcs, because obviously there's a... Um, an editorial change but i don't know if they they sort of had bigger plans for a proper gwenum arc or something like that but i think the way they use the gwenum stuff is as a way of indicating to the to the reader that gwen's emotions are very dialed up even if she's in control like if gwenum shows up you know she's very frustrated it's a very good i think visual indicator and it's also very cool like it's a very cool look and the sort of the way that you can see her clothes morph into it and then morph back again is also very very cool and there's that sort of the the fight where it does show up very briefly for that one panel is i think quite interesting because it's obviously it's gwen at her i'd say like spiritually weakest point she makes that sort of original sin mistake of beating down on the thugs too hard, like she did for Peter Parker originally. Like, that is her big flaw, I guess. And she lets the sort of the anger at the way that she's been treated 
by the world get the better of her and the way she takes down on those thugs. We also need to point out that, you know, throughout Impossible Year, Gwen's symbiote was malfunctioning because it kept leaving gummy spiders everywhere, similar to how during uh, Mike Costa's early Venom run, I think from 150 to up until Venom Inc., it just kept leaving pieces of itself behind. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, I did consider putting it in the synopsis, but the idea of putting in and Gwen leaves a few gummy spiders behind every paragraph um, seemed so tedious to me, I didn't do it. But yeah, and obviously it, it becomes an issue for MJ, who is frightened by one of them. But yeah, like the idea is that Gwen's symbiote is separate from everything else, acting out, it's attached to these headaches, and Gwen needs to know why. And that's a sort of B-plot that's setting up stuff they deal more with in Dog Days or over. They find uh, the resolution to that in, in that. But overall, I think establishing that Gwen's relationship with the symbiote is basically just always com si com sa. You know, it's always kind of like 50-50. You know, like her Gwenham state wasn't really something that you can put in a box and forget about. Like I think sometimes with Peter Parker and the Venom stuff, because he's separated from it, they, they sort of like they, they gave him the black suit arc they put it behind them and then occasionally they'll give him another black suit arc for something else i don't know so it'll be like some days she'll be jekyll other days she's hide yeah like it feels more like gwen could switch into becoming more aggressive more more violent in her form of justice at any one time and this arc very much plays around with that idea they have um after that fight where gwen sort of briefly shows up they have this one scene with the thugs and they comment that she's a monster the way that she's acting is is sort of so violent and it's very you know it's sort of you you see it for a moment that you know gwen in theory could become so violent that she could be acting villainously she could be acting like a monster and there's this sort of point i think perhaps with the manual fight where it becomes apparent that like she's not gonna like kill him even after everything he's done and you know she declares that she's not going to become a monster and there's this line about monsters end things and the idea that Gwen sort of still is still sort of has a no killing rule, I guess, um, and that she ha- she isn't going to kill him. So, yeah, and she sort of vows not to be a monster, which is, you know, like, you know, I think a nice, a nice place to take Gwen for now, even with all these things going wrong, a nice sort of. You know, Gwen's in a happier, more constructive place in her life. And that reflects that, I think. Because, yeah, you know, with the policy of, you know, heroes don't kill, they uh, they spare. But, you know, even though she's being a hero, it seems like, you know, she's taking a page from Luke and Danny about being a hero for hire. Yeah, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, yeah, that's an interesting thing there. Because obviously, like, it's, it becomes ethically a bit interesting when you start charging money for helping people. But yeah, Gwen needs it, right? Like... Yeah, because, you know, it's to pay for rent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, they do have one scene where it's overdue bills, overdue rent on the table. And Gwen keeps mentioning that she needs to help out with rent and mentions the fact that if she doesn't do this, they might struggle to afford food. And yeah, like, I think, you know, she does need the money there. Like, I don't think it's ethically wrong to charge people for selfies and stuff. I think that's fine doing stuff like labor for somebody like getting elevated air samples all of that is you know i think i think you know good for gwen right like getting getting paid yeah um, and do you think she'd also use that money for uh, enrolling in college if she decided to go through with it yeah i do think in her heart though gwen is very much against going to college right now like she's completely put off from it by that experience that she had where she got made as spider woman basically and i don't think that we'll get 
you know, like in, at this point, like in this arc, that Gwen really is thinking of using any of that money for college. Yeah. I think that's not in her head. Obviously, for future arcs, it's not necessarily true, but at this point in time, she's so put off by that experience, she can barely get like a normal day out, let alone anything like that. Yeah, especially since, you know, with uh, the public still being irate with her, like with all of her actions from the previous run, you know, it cost her trying to start a relationship with Harry. Yeah, and I think it's interesting there's sort of a very mixed reaction to Gwen's uh, having a, a, a like a public identity. Um, the fact that, you know, you have some instances, she'll save the jewelry store and she gets clapped and applauded and, you know, everybody sings her praises and um, then she'll go out for a meal and then all of the patrons there are like, this is a villain. And maybe that's a, maybe that's maybe some kind of class commentary, I don't know, to have the really rich people not like Gwen and the more regular people be less angry at Gwen because Gwen does even make a comment about white collar crime and stuff in the restaurant and stuff. But I don't know. I think having a mixed reaction to Gwen's dealings is would be right. Like some people obviously would look at Gwen as a hero and lionize her actions, and other people would look at them as being, you know, quite violent and having resulted in the deaths of at least one person. So it's you know, there's a nuance to that throughout Gwen's comics, and I think it makes sense for the writer to position it so that the public is also very ambiguous on Gwen, where you have people who will see her as a hero and others won't. Um, and we'll see her as criminal. So it's kind of like with MCU Wanda at this point. See, the thing with MCU Wanda is that she did, in fact, kidnap a whole town of people. Yeah. She didn't apologize no. very much. No. Um, so, uh, whereas I think Gwen has made a more concerted effort to try and redeem her actions in this comic. Uh, like, the doing the prison time, I think is a very active, I think, attempt to try and appease the people like those restaurant patrons by having done that time. It does mean that she can like practically, you know, like not be on the run, not be a fugitive and all that. But it also means that like she can try and sway public opinion a bit in her favor. But you know, as as we know, like the court trial that she went to, they found her guilty for those actions. So it's not like even then that people in the context of that, were positive towards it. I think it is ideal when you have split opinion on Earth-65. I think I like that as a status quo, the idea that some people will be in favor of having Ghost Spider, Spider-Gwen in their neighborhood, and others will be against it. I think that's quite interesting, because we obviously, like, that's how stuff would be in real life, right? You have, like, celebrities and, and sports people who can be both vilified and lionized at the same time, um, especially if they have very complicated histories. And I think that would make sense for Gwen in the context of these comics. I think that's a, that's a sort of a very balanced approach to dealing with you know like the general lives of people you know yeah that's true especially you know given how you know um what's the word i'm looking for um i'm just gonna use another word chastise how spider people are yeah they do and i think like it's a big thing for peter having like uh really bad newspaper headlines they love going back to that trope for peter i mean they're doing it in the current films for him historically in his comics in and stuff he's generally frowned upon as a menace um, but I think there's never been a man, well, I, I suppose there probably has been manhunts for him, but like as a status quo for Gwen, for all of her comics up until the start of this era, there has been a manhunt for her. There has been a specific concerted effort by the police to violently uh, stop her. And that I think 
leaves a sort of pall over her whole relationship with the rest of the world around her, where so much sort of destruction and conflict has occurred over the public perception of her. And, you know, that's sort of... That, I think that's always going to be the case for the Spider-Gwen comics because it was it was so, so thick and heavy in the first few, especially the first debut issue where it's like it, the, the angst of it is weighing on her, the guilt. I think they'll always have to lean into that a little bit going forward with the comics. I thought the particularly in the example the Maguire uses of that where she frames um that one scene, the flashback to when Jameson would give speeches from a podium for political points to try and rail against the reign of terror of the Spider-Woman. And then flashing forward to now where um he's like, yeah, no, uh, Spider-Woman's great. Love Spider-Woman. She's paid her time and we respect that. That sort of showing that difference, I think, is a really interesting thing. And, and the way that they use, the, the in subtle ways, because it's not something you can have in like a big way, just show all at once. This kind of arc lends itself to showing these small ways that having a split public opinion of a superhero would affect that superhero's life going about day to day. And I think that's really, really good. Yeah, and, you know, here's hoping to... Whenever Gwen returns to Earth-65, whenever that is, I'm just thinking that the people who are irate to her before are practically now begging for her help, considering what goes down later. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know if that's... Yeah, I guess we'll have to see later. But yeah, like the extent to which New York-65 needs Gwen is interesting because at this point, there's not really been any like city-shaking apocalypses or anything like it's not been taken over it's not all been imprisoned it's not been not everybody's not been turned into spiders nothing nothing like that has happened in the spider-gwen comics all of it's generally just very very heavy police presence lots of organized crime and those are like the two things which are really the sort of the main lights of the average new york 65 um, citizen i think like they don't have these big threats which justify the existence of superheroes like the hand and Man Wolf's Gang, these are more general like, systemic problems, I guess, like to have organized crime around. It's not something you would, you know, it's not like some supervillain has arisen with a, a plan for world domination that, that needs, you know, uh, like a small group of superpowered people to take it on. It's it's more like, I think, exploring the idea of, it's much more scaled down, right? Like Gwen isn't 100% necessary. So you can have split opinions like this. You can have nuance about it, you know, should somebody go out at night fighting crime beating up people and taking them into the cops you know is that a thing you'd want in your city and i think you know that's what you could sort of imagine debates like that going on among the people of new york because it does feel much more scaled down and much more i think real to people's normal lives yeah i think we've pretty much covered everything that there is to say about going in this arc should we move on to our villain of the week yes well as the cw who would say man wolf Oh, he's very much a CW villain, though, isn't he? I, he's very much um, like the big hulking monster type thing, right? Like, I like him. I think he's fun. I think, I think he's, I think he's quite interesting. And here, you know, um, like how he became the Man Wolf is different because a here he's a crime boss rather than his traditional astronaut. Yeah. Um. So it's the Jackal, Miles Warren, who who isn't superpowered here. Um. And John Jameson the Third, the Man Wolf. They're sort of they appear to be quite bound up with each other's sort of origins. I would imagine that 
Miles Warren gave Manwolf the mutagen to turn him into this? Yeah, since um, traditionally Manwolf uses a lunar crystal called the Godstone, which he found while he was being an astronaut, that's how he turns into the Manwolf. Yeah, I don't think that's the case here. I don't think there's any any mystical origin. I think it is a more sort of standard... Just wolf formula? He's been Yeah, he's been mutated into it. I like that they do introduce, though, along the same lines, a weakness where the power is subject to the lunar cycle. So he will not be able to use it. Like, he's, he's in a regular human form for a certain portion of the lunar cycle, and then he transforms into the man-wolf, and that's when he's got to time his attack for. I like that aspect. I think that's really interesting. It's a good weakness for that sort of... For a character themed around that. I thought it's interesting because his father is the mayor, right? And he's the leader of the biggest organized crime that we've seen since The Hand in New York. And you have to wonder, is there collusion in there? Uh, is there some kind of... Like if Jameson is funding John's organized crime, or I think it's been established that later on that, you know, John's doing this to rebel against Jameson. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, there's obviously a lot of tension, I would imagine, there. But I think other things which sort of come to light, I guess, further down the line in terms of the mayor's involvement with different things with the police, that I think that, like, it is, you know, I'd like to see them explore that. Like, what, what's what's the relationship there? I don't I don't necessarily want to see, you know, how Manwolf became Manwolf, but I do want to see what the dynamic is between the father and the son there. And, you know, how that would contrast with Gwen and her father as well. Like, I think that would make a really interesting parallel. And just generally what's going on there. I think that's a really sort of fun dynamic. And also the design is just, it's great. Like, I think it's it's just, uh, it's it's fully embraces the camp, I think, of Manwolf, which is, which is fine. Especially since they gave him blue hair instead of the uh, stereotypical canonically white hair that 616 Manwolf has, or actually any other Manwolf has. Yeah, I think um, perhaps the reasoning behind that is that Gwen is already wearing white and they wouldn't want the two to clash that much. And also they can do things like have him hide in the shadows, which is what he does a lot more when he's a darker color. That's true because, you know, it's kind of hard to sneak up on people if you're wearing like, yeah, if you're bright. Yeah, like he's a much darker colored character because he's like, it's a contrast with Gwen's sort of sort of bright look with the hood. Um, he, he sort of, he lurches out the shadows, right? And I think having a dark blue color really lends it to that for sure. I think it's kind of like with, uh, Electra before she became Daredevil. She, because if you think about it, it's not really practical fighting villains in the night wearing a bright red costume. And then, you know, she switched to a darker color palette to uh, match her Netflix outfit. Yeah, um, I think that's definitely something which I think about when you see some superheroes, because obviously some they don't need to worry about it. Like Superman doesn't need to worry about hiding. Some supervillains don't need to worry about stealth or stuff. And that's fine, I think. And I think it makes sense for those heroes to have brighter colors. But I think the more street level you get, the more reasons you have for characters to start doing things like considering how bright would I stand out in a street fight, which is, you know, which would be a concern, I think. And I think, like, for Gwen, obviously, she doesn't have a physical equal. Like, she is stronger than Manwolf. I think I think the fight here quite clearly shows that she is physically able to overpower him. And she doesn't need to worry about having to go stealth and wear, like, like the all-black Gwenham outfit, for instance. She's quite capable of going around with the big sort of bright hoodie. Now, I think if she wanted to go stealth, she would have just used her symbiote's camouflage. 
There is that as well, and I wish they'd use that, because there are some points in this where I'm like, absolutely, Gwen should be using the camouflage stuff. There's multiple times where she's trying to hide, and she gets made. Like, twice in the ninth issue here, Gwen sneaks into a place and is found out by a person hiding in that place. Um, and you, And you have to wonder, like, you know, why would you not use the camo mode? Like, why, why not? But yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the the fight with Manwolf takes up, ooh, how many pages? I want to say uh, like three or four. It's more than that. Is, uh, okay, it starts at one, two, and there's this brilliant full page thing. And the thing is, like, Manwolf is he's bigger than the average person, but compared to Gwen, who's got a very small frame, he looks enormous. He towers over her. And the whole fight, she looks tiny compared to him, which I, I guess makes her strength over him more impressive. But yeah, so it goes for, I think, one, two, three, four, five. It's a sort of a six-page fight. It ends in the sixth one. She carries on talking to him on the seventh one. It's a long fight, though. It's probably one of the longer fight sequences we've seen between two characters. I guess it's because, you know, um, considering uh, how bulky Manwolf is, he's practically sacrificing strength for speed, which is why Gwen's able to get the upper hand on him. Yeah, no, I think um, absolutely he's not able to, like his swipes obviously look very strong, but he doesn't catch her enough, basically, and she's able to sort of just swing around onto the top of his head and then beat him down from there. Um, and the one time that he does actually catch her and pin her down for the kill, she kicks him off. She just she just pushes him off with the legs and sends him flying. Like it's not like a scramble out. She sends him flying and she just gets up and carries on fighting. And even though she admits that she's hurt, she just uses that as like drive to end the fight even quicker. And I think this is probably the most physical force we've seen Gwen display towards one character because he is, yeah, he's a big he's a big character. You know, he's a big wolf that needs beaten down so yeah okay so i think that's probably pretty much covered everything about Manwolf, right um yeah there was one thing i really liked though the reaction that gwen has to seeing Manwolf for the first time to me is the funniest thing like the just the general like because he is such a campy character right he's essentially a giant furry right and yeah and when Manwolf tries to rebuke that gwen says that in her case it's a gimmick not a fursona yeah, when he's like, oh, you're a spider. Like, that line is brilliant. One of my favorite lines in the Spider-Gwen comics. It cracks me up um, every time. And, and then also the fact that like, just Gwen refuses to take him seriously at any point in the fight. She does not take him as a, I guess, person who talks seriously. Like, um, she, she calls him out that at the start of the fight. She laughs at his liners in the middle of the fight. She's like, what are you, 12? Right. Like he starts, he gives these lines about sleeping in a bed of his enemy's bones and he's, and she's like, she just finds it funny. And I, I found the way that Maguire writes Gwen as using sort of humor as a way to sort of just completely rile up the villain sort of that's, I guess it's a classic Peter Parker thing, but yeah, it works very, very well here. And I think it does it in a way which I think fits Gwen's voice. Cause she does it in a way which makes her seem very cool. Like as a character, like you, she's, she's very much above it all with her, with her one liners. It's not about necessarily trying to, you know, be mean, but more like just to, just to completely take the seriousness out of the situation. She doesn't really want to get on his level at all, and I think that comes through with the humor, which is quite interesting, because he wants to be taken very seriously. But outside of like people he can physically threaten, it's not really the case for Manwolf. No, because, you know, like I said before, CW villain. Yes. So we already talked about Captain Stacy. Um, let's jump to Harry instead. This is a rough arc for Harry. He had a brief appearance 
in Spider-Geddon, which was his grand return, I guess. Not grand return. His first appearance after um, being de-lizardified back in the Predators arc in the last run. And he's he's obviously a bit more upbeat. He's obviously, you know, back in the game. And he's, he frequently goes for meals with Gwen now. Like, he is her main confidant. Um, and they get a lot closer here. He asks her on a date. And, like, Gwen kind of shuts him down quite a bit, which is fine, I guess. Well, um, remember this yeah. happened during a flashback, I think, in uh, Spider-Gwen Volume 2, Number 1, in Greater Power. He was trying to ask her out to prom, but Gwen didn't pick up on the clues. Peter had to spell it out for her. Yeah, um... Harry has been pining after Gwen for a very long time, and I think, like, Gwen kind of isn't against that, but she's definitely, like, not committed to it. And I think it hurts Harry quite a bit at a couple of times where there's moments where Gwen just feels that she cannot do anything on account of the way she's perceived by the public. And there's another moment where she's, like, just completely frustrated, and she accidentally says something which is, like, super mean to what he was doing there and i i felt i felt for harry in this arc and the way it ends with him hospitalized and he never shows up again like not even in the next book and the thing is like i was looking at it again and i was thinking about it did he die did he you know is he dead well like when it says death loves gwen stacy gwen stacy loves her people is he dead in the hospital but i don't think he is no i think he's just comatose yeah, but he may as well be narratively speaking because he just does not show up again after this. So the idea is that like for a very short period of time, Gwen gets out of prison and like reignites this friendship verging on relationship with Harry. And then he is made comatose from going to one of her concerts and he never and they never speak again. Like that's the impression we get. And I think it's been filled in a bit in the gaps. Like it's been more like along the lines of Gwen couldn't be with Harry because obviously um, he does keep getting hurt. And, and to the point of near death so you know maybe there is a case to be made there with the whole public identity thing but um they don't acknowledge this on panel this is dropped after this arc and i think it's a real shame because i do think there's you know not terrible chemistry there like it's you know is, is substantial enough that i think it does deserve closure at least even if it's not the most compelling ship i think for gwen by any means no, I'm seeing this right now. Uh, what did you type in caption error for? Oh, yeah. Um, there is... I was reading it, and I read this back a few times, and it confused me. Uh, but there is a point at issue 8 on the second page. Um, Gwen sort of changes her outfit from the Spider-Gwen look to a civilian look. And a passerby is walking by and is, like, side-eying her, shocked that this superheroes dropped out this guy and now looks like a normal person and the captions are not attributed correctly they attribute harry's caption to this random passerby instead of attributing it to him which would have been like off panel and it looks really strange um and yeah that was just what that was okay. that was what that note was okay i think um, like uh with your earlier point i think osborne's in general they get the short straw they do. They do. Um, they, they have a rough time of it, at least, uh, you know, within the narrative. But like, also, I think the way Harry is dropped here without even like a panel or a caption acknowledging the end of their friendship or relationship or whatever, I do think is a shame because, yeah, it's a lot is built here and then suddenly sort of dropped. And I think that's a shame because it's, yeah, it's not it's not fun to have arcs built up and then dropped. So, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know how much of that was in Maguire's hands, though, to be fair. Yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, she does get more development with her other friends, the Mary Janes. Yeah, this is interesting here because, um, yeah, like, there's a lot of tension there. Like, 
MJ is super angry at Gwen all of the time. Every scene, it's rough. It is rough. I think it's supposed to be that stereotype of the angry redhead. Yeah, um, it definitely feels like MJ's fallen into that at this point. And don't get me wrong, I think there are some like legitimate points she raises, but there is some there is some scenes in it, and I'm like, MJ, please, you know, chill. Even in the captions, when Gwen is recapping who everyone is, I think the first time she called MJ lead pain in the neck, and then the second time was yells really loud. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I think I would be more okay with it if Gwen sort of was also, to some extent, like, being slightly antagonistic. But a lot of the time, there's not enough of, like, to provide some level of justification for MJ to act this way. But I I do think it's, like, it seems quite harsh, especially because we had a lot of, like, as well as moments like this, I suppose, in the original run. We had a lot of moments where MJ was a lot softer, I guess, and a lot more um, because she cares about her friends as well as the band and she feels very strongly about her friends and we don't get any of that in this arc and I think we do in the next couple. I do think it's built on. But at this point it does feel like if you'd read just this arc of Mary Jane 65 content, you'd come away with the feeling that MJ isn't a very deep character. Like, they don't give her enough, I guess, redeeming moments where she isn't very, very angry at somebody to make it feel like you know, she is a, a human who exists outside of shouting at Gwen. Yeah, and remember how um, there's been thoughts about whether or not that MJ might have a secret unrequited crush on Gwen because of that song? Yeah, and I think obviously Shona Maguire is aware of that ship from the first arc that we looked at, the Spider-Geddon one. There's obviously the MJ-Gwen agenda is very much present there, and it feels like it comes through in a few moments, and definitely the way that Maguire has MJ singing about Gwen feels very... Yeah, I don't know, there's tension there. I, I, um, what kind of tension is up to the reader's interpretation? But absolutely, I, I do I do very much see the case for that ship. And then there's um, also, you know, um, her jealousy over Gwen having superpowers. Yeah, and, oh, that also comes through. Uh, it was an interesting setup there. I thought that was good. It's definitely, yeah, it took a long time for that one to pay off. But, um, but yeah, very much a good sort of moment there. That, like, I think a lot of it for MJ is Spotlight. It is an attention sort of thing where to feel validated by other people. And that comes through in like the fact that she enjoys being the front woman for the band, but also in the fact that when Gwen diverts her attention elsewhere, she feels hurt by that. Yeah, even when, you know, she accused Gwen of uh, having her spiders latch onto her on purpose. Yeah, I do think for MJ, it's like she sees the sort of the lack of attention that Gwen pays her now as a sort of a personal thing. And I think that's what undermines their friendship in a lot of these interactions. And I think um, if uh, there was any point to defend her, it would be because of all this stress of attempting to make a big comeback. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's I think there's something to be said for like she's essentially in a managerial position and she's sort of acting like a a grumpy manager basically as somebody who's trying to keep their employees in line and you know, I get that angle. I did think there were a, a couple of other notes with the Mary Janes. Yeah, Glory's always the one to calm her down after MJ perceives Gwen to be doing something wrong. Yeah, Glory is completely in a support role for MJ. And also, they're sort of... Yeah, they're still together. They are, but they don't... Yeah, again, it's I think it's very much more a subtext thing, I think. It's very much more not as acknowledged at this point. No, but um, Betty here, like, she's more of a support to Gwen. Yeah, um, it does feel like MJ and Glory are tight, where, where Betty and, and Gwen are sort of, like, it's divided 
I think between them two, and I, I do think it's interesting, like Betty's role in this. Um, I, I thought the whole thing where Betty felt uncomfortable having Gwen in the apartment because of the threat of supervillains knowing where they would live, where Spider Woman lives. I thought that was really interesting. And and also, it's like a real thing. Like if you were a superhero, like a regular working person in the world who was also a superhero with a public identity, you'd struggle to find people who were like willing to live in the same building as you. And it's reduced to going to the point where she can only live with a, her father, who is also, of course, a police captain who is um, somewhat capable of, of fighting the supervillains of Earth-65, as, we, as we've seen. But yeah, it very much has limited her there. And like there's that whole bit where... Betty sort of preemptively shuts down any conversation of Gwen moving back in and then like apologizes for it a bit later. And I thought that was an interesting interaction because that's, that's a, it's probably the, like of all Betty's characterizations, that's probably one of the deeper ones, I guess. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering if any villains are actually using yellow pages to track Gwen and Betty down. If Gwen still lived with her. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the thing is like with the instance with the vulture, with Craven and the Punisher, if I were Betty, I'd be looking at that and going, that's not good. That Because now that they know that she lives here as well, they're not just going after George Stacey, then, you know, you're in the firing line. And I think it's completely reasonable on her part to, to express that. Um, so kind of like when uh, Tony called out the Mandarin in Iron Man 3? Yeah, like, and and then they, they blew up his place? Yeah. Yeah, like this, that's the same thing. I think that was a good uh, way of displaying the consequences of... Um, of a public superior identity and um, that sort of threat looms over you because obviously if you're a supervillain and you want to like attack the superhero when they're vulnerable and they have a public identity, then yeah, of course this is going to happen. And um, really Gwen sort of lacks for active rogues right now, but with the rise of the man, wolf, that's like the first thing which happens is they target her and the band at a gig, right? Like that's what, this is the consequence of, of a public superhero identity. And I think, um, yeah, that that one really sucks. Yeah. Um, for Gwen, I think like I, I'm not 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 as a writing device or anything, just just as a practical thing that Gwen has to deal with as a character. Just you know, it's a really distressing situation to basically always be on alert. Yeah. So is that it for the Mary Janes right now? Yeah, I think so. I think there'll be there'll be a lot more to discuss in a couple of arcs time. Yeah. We got the introduction of Jackal sixty five here, who is not a creepy college biology professor, but would you still call him creepy? Um, he, he doesn't have many opportunities to be creepy. He's not working in a college. He's working alongside thugs that he has a general disdain for. So he can't be a creep about it as much. He obviously sneaks about quite a bit. And he has a couple of moments where he's like, I don't know, he, he calls himself the jackal, which is like, you know, it's a, I guess it's a kind of a creepy animal. I think it's because, you know, um, Manwolf kept calling him scavenger because that's what jackals are. I think he called, started calling him scavenger after he called himself jackal. I think I think it was in that order, like oh, because I think um in wildlife jackals are scavengers. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like uh, Manwolf, who very much buys into I think all of that alpha stuff, presumably, probably does try to draw analogies and stuff between reality and the personas that he and his henchmen have picked out. So, like, I don't know. I thought Miles Warren was interesting, the support role he has, because he's obviously running a lot of the things in the Manwolf gang. He's obviously responsible for a lot of different stuff. He's the science guy. Yeah, but he's also, he, like... The strategist? He, yeah, he, he's do, he's making a lot of, I think, he's doing a lot of the important thinking in the group, which sets him up well for when Manwolf disappears. And also means that he's 
got this symbiote spider of Gwen's, which we'll see next arc. Um, so yeah. And I wanted to point out that even though he's not a teacher in this reality, it was alluded to when Warren said that he should have gone into academia. Yeah, like uh, at some point he decided to go into turning people into giant wolves, you know, as many people do deciding to pursue their dreams. <laughs> but, you know, but he himself doesn't even uh, use a jackal costume or formula. Yeah, I would say maybe even if he's the same level of creepiness, I think he seems better put together than the jackal of Earth 616. You know, he isn't uh, the decision making process and the the way that he executes his psychopathy upon the people around him is not in a sort of insane cloning thing mabob that he did in <laughs> no. uh, 616 with a uh, yoda outfit on yes. um yeah so this would be one version of jackal who's not really creepy unless if you want to count uncle raymond oh yeah let's uh Uncle Raymond's strange one. Uh, yeah, Marvel's Spider-Man is is an uh, interesting cartoon for Gwen stuff. But like, like at least it's not Miles Warren. They're just using it's practically his brother's name, but having that maternal uncle-niece connection, that was a thing. That was a thing, yeah. Absolutely. And um, I think this Jackal is, is a tad more interesting. I think probably better written than the cartoon one. Yeah, because, well, the cartoon had creative liberties, so... Yeah, I think more so with them trying to avoid any of the anything that would be perceived as creepy, they sort of made a creepier situation, um, I guess. Yeah, just to allude to that dynamic in 616. Yeah. And finally, we have um, Elsa Brock, who doesn't show up. No, it seems like after, what was her last appearance? 19 or 20 of the last run. I think the last thing I remember the last thing she did was have that argument with uh, Murdoch in the taxi. Yeah, because it seems like during this arc, she just dropped off the face of the earth. Yeah, and it's like you have to wonder what happened there. I would like to see more of, I guess, more of what happened there and what they were trying to do, and like specifically, who would have the incentive to disappear Elsa Brock? Like, who would have the desire to make her vanish? And uh, in the way that that happened as well. And I'm thinking that this is probably an early push to have Gwen meet Eddie when she wanted to travel to 616. Because if she can't get her scientist counterpart, probably the uh, veteran symbiote host would have to do. Yeah, I think that, like, obviously, yeah, they do that for number 10. Yeah. And um, Dr. Elsa Brock, I think, was a good sort of riff on the character. I wouldn't mind seeing that one again. And, or at least just knowing what happened there. I can imagine Norman Osborn being embarrassed about the whole situation with Venom and wanting to hide anything to do with that. But I guess we'll see. Yeah. If the next person remembers who Elsa is. Yes, let's, um, let's hope so. I think, I think that name will come up again. Uh, even if they drop all of the arcs they've done so far, I think Elsa Brock will return in some form. Like she could be Gwen's um, science support if she doesn't want to go to Reed. Yeah, maybe. Or could be a new supervillain in her own right. Maybe. It, it depends on because you know Elsa Brock only had like one or two issues to do something. So. Yeah, but in that time, what like she's interacting with the lizard mutagen with the spiders. Uh, that gave Gwen her powers originally, and with the symbiote stuff. So there's a lot they could... Depends whether or not if she's mad scientist or not. I got the impression she was a tiny bit unhinged in the Predators arc. A little bit mad. Well, we'll see when uh, she happens to show up again. We will. We will, yeah. 
So uh, I think we should start wrapping things up with our uh, concluding thoughts. Yeah, that works. Okay, so like throughout Impossible Year, I really did feel like that this was sort of a nice way to, you know, um, have Gwen juggle her public identity with her civilian life because most of the other heroes, they seem to be handling pretty well, but Gwen being in her 20s as a spider person, they don't really get a lot of that uh, luxury of being loved and adored by the public. If you're having a public identity, because in the previous run, you know, she was still branded as a criminal and a murderer. And even when she uh, made her amends by serving her time in prison, people are still irate to her because of... uh, Because she was sent to prison out of the fear of uh, not what she did in the past, but what she could do. And I thought that Impossible Year was a good way for her to pick up the pieces after her life was like somewhat in crumbles. Yeah, I know. I'd I'd agree. And I think the strength of this comes from showing the consequences of the previous story work that was done um, and, and having to show the practical aspects of that uh, i do think there is a bit of a, a letdown maybe with uh captain stacy's decision to return to the police and and maybe like the lack of mentions of the fact that gwen was indeed in a violent prison and how that would affect somebody but overall like the other practical things shown are very interesting um i thought Manwolf was a really fun villain i enjoy having gwen being in a sort of a more grounded day-to-day life um, type comic where you do get um, a sense of you know her financial situation her education her work her different friends um, and and also sort of the the state of you know the way that she's seen politically and stuff all of that i think is covered in here and built upon and i think if we had four arcs that were just like this building on gwen's sort of life you'd have a very fleshed out look at her and they'd have they'd be able to do a lot of different threads in in very nuanced ways but alas we didn't quite get that but yeah i think there's a lot of lot of strengths to impossible year i really enjoyed this arc um and yeah and with the introduction of the man wolf you know um as previously mentioned about you know gwen's current rogues being into horror territory man wolf is just one of them that was just my agenda that was mentioned last week Absolutely, yeah. If you want to claim a Cloud Chapman's right, uh, a horror ghost spider story, I- I'm sure Manwolf would be up there front and center. And we're going to be mentioning the other three villains that are part of the agenda in a couple of weeks. Yes, yes, we will. That'd be fun. Yeah. So, uh, claim a Cloud Chapman. If you're listening to this again, can you drop us a line? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I read um, Extreme Carnage last year today, and that was fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, how are you enjoying Silence? Yeah, um, I I love that line about you know like the little the little divot above everybody's lips is where Silence puts the uh, puts her fingers to shush them. I thought that was very profound. Very, I don't I don't know if Andy's okay, but I thought this is a really cool new symbiote. I'm just paraphrasing what Silence said to Phage. I'm like, shut up now. I'm the one doing the talking. So much, yeah. I thought that was interesting. I wonder what happened to Scream, though. I like is is Scream. I don't know. I guess we'll probably see. suppressed. Yeah, or or transformed. Maybe is that what's happened here? Because it's practically like um, Silence is practically like a Scream clone, just like how the original Anti Venom was when Eddie was exposed to Mister Negative's energy. Yes, I suppose. Yeah, I could see that. 
well, um, I guess we'll see with Extreme Carnage. It's it's been a, that's a that's a fun one. If you've enjoyed today's action in Impossible Year, do check out the Extreme Carnage event currently going on. Very good stuff. It's eight issues. It's all linear. It's in one long sort of arc. Give it a read. And Riot just released last week. Yes, I have that. And Toxin will be released next week. Yeah, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. Right. So, um, time for me to start giving the spiel. Yes, I believe it is. Okay, so next week, as we mentioned before, we're actually going to be reading Peach Momoko's Demon Days Cursed Web. This is the third of fifth entry of the Demon Days saga, and it continues the adventures of Mariko Yashida, where in this book, she encounters versions of Mystique, Sabretooth, and the version of Ghost Spider that we mentioned before. Her name is Reina Yuyami. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> where uh, she has to uh, find the Oni that killed her parents in the past. So that's going to be interesting. We get to see what this version of Ghost Spider is going to be like in feudal Japan. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be... Uh, well, no, in it, modern day. It's not feudal. The first one was feudal, but there's a really big time jump. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, like, uh, I, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it... There's still, like, feud, feudal-type elements to it. But like uh, it from Rico onwards, like they're using smartphones and stuff. So oh, I I gotta catch up. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I think I enjoyed Mariko more. I liked I liked that one more. The, after the time jump, I think it's it's going in a very interesting direction. Obviously, that first one with feudal Japan stuff is fun, but the Momoko verse, from what I understand, is going to be primarily set in a sort of mythological modern day type version of japan with like oni everywhere and stuff so you know as always we'll put links in the description of what to buy and where to read and also a spider gwen ghost spiders reading list even though this isn't part of the uh, continuity we just wanted to cover this anyway yes yeah yeah uh, absolutely i think uh this is the biggest piece of gwen content we've had for a while that we're going to get for a while from marvel comics so uh, i say gwen content sorry ghost spider content because it's not gwen it is reina yuyami so yeah i think I'm, I'm really pumped for it yeah i think it might actually be out now if i try and buy it on comiXology so um so yeah, yeah if uh, y'all had any questions or thoughts about the show or for demon days cursed web we are at GS Groupies on Twitter, or you can email us at ghostspidergroupies at gmail.com. There's also going to be a Reddit thread that's going to be up sometime after this airs. And if you want to support us on coffee because we're two poor people in their 20-somethings trying to keep the lights on, if you'd like, come and support us. Yeah, or at least to pay for the Podbean subscription. Oh yeah, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah i think that's the i think i think once we've paid the podbean subscription we can start looking at the secondary stuff like um like like bills um so um yeah that's the that's the show yep so for this week i've been abigail and i'm pax bye everybody bye